welcome to Carrying On The Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring For The Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. Here's our host of Caring on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to Caring on the Go. I'm your host, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Caring on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from Caring for the Ages the news magazine from AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. With every new issue, we welcome Caring for the Ages Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, to discuss some key articles. In this episode, we'll be highlighting our first issue of the year, the January 2023 issue of Caring. Dr. Gallick is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings through a clinical practice within the Shepherd Pratt Health System. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program. And Beth also conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. Beth, welcome back to Caring on the Go. I hope you've had a lovely holiday season. I have, Carl, and I hope you have as well. Uh, We're getting ready and very close to the new year. So happy new year in advance. Yep. Yep. The same to you. And I just, you know, I'm thinking back to two holiday seasons ago, uh, December of 2020, and just how awful that was. And I think all of the, uh, all of my future holiday seasons will be compared against that. And I think they're all, I hope they're all going to look pretty darn good uh, compared to what we, what we uh, experienced then. Yes. I think every year it seems to be getting a, a little bit more manageable. Yeah. Yep. And let's hope that trend continues. Um, All right. So uh, we're going to kick off today's session talking about the lead front page article by our senior reporter, Joanne Caldy, about alcohol consumption in post-acute and long-term care settings. And personally, I've always been pretty liberal about writing orders for a glass of wine or beer with dinner for my nursing home and assisted living residents, although I don't drink at all. I haven't had a drink in over 30 years. But I wasn't surprised in 2018 to see the study that came out in The Lancet that basically showed, I think fairly conclusively, that there is no amount of alcohol, even a sip, that on balance confers any physical health benefits. And so, you know, I had to kind of change what I told my patients uh, and family members, uh, that old conventional wisdom about like, you know, you drink a glass or two of red wine and that's good. It's, you know, raises your HDL or whatnot. So I no longer tell people that. Uh, but clearly alcohol can can be a definite, substantial quality of life enhancer for some people. And they should have a right to this level of self-determination, even if they're in a nursing home, right? So um, what are your takeaways from this article, Dr. Gallick? Thanks, Carl. So as the title of the article indicates, alcohol use in post-acute and long-term care settings really is a true balance of choice and safety. And alcohol use needs to be on a clinician's radar as half of adults 65 years of age and older consume alcohol. 
So there's a couple important points from this article that I'd like to, to mention. Um, I thought there was a great point um, by uh, Dr. Paul Sacco, who said that we often assess how much alcohol an individual drinks, but with older adults, it's particularly important to understand why they're drinking alcohol. Is it part of a daily routine? Does it help them with um, in social events or with socialization? Or are they drinking out of boredom to help with sleep or to deal with mood or anxiety or grief? So I thought that was a really important point, not just figuring out the actual amount, but what's motivating them to drink. Um, the second um, kind of came, I think, from Dr. Barbara Resnick, which um, made a point of staff mistaking inebriation with an acute medical problem. And she had a recommendation that if a patient's been away from the facility, and we know at holiday time that often happens, um, it's fine for staff to ask about alcohol intake upon that person's return. And then um, some tried and true advice, thinking about drug um, and alcohol interactions, particularly with analgesics, antibiotics, anticoagulants, psychotropic medications, the anti-diabetic medications, and, and several others. And, you know, Carl, I think you, you said it well, prohibition really isn't the answer. We learned that from history, um, mm -hmm. and we really do need to balance between safety and self determination. Um, I had one little story I wanted to share just as a, a fun point. There was a, a, a gentleman that I cared for years and years ago who wasn't eating very well. And, it, you know, he mentioned that it was important for him to have um, a beer with his dinner. Mm. And um, he had pretty significant cognitive impairment and some reasons why um, having alcohol uh, wouldn't have been good, but they got him a, a, a non-alcoholic beer. And one day his son was up visiting and he said, and his, um, he asked his dad for a sip and he's like, no, I only get one of these a day. I'm not sharing. <laughs> <laughs> not even one sip. Huh? Yeah. Not even one sip. And he's right. like, don't, he's like, don't say anything to them. He's like, I think they forgot they're giving this to me. So, Hilarious. Um, you know, it, it, it can be a, a, an important quality of life issue. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the thing about people coming back uh, after being out on pass and being altered, I mean, it's not just alcohol, right? I mean, nowadays, I think we see more and more people uh, who may have been uh, using other substances too. So, uh, yeah. and again, I, you know, they've got a right to do that, but uh it's uh puts can put us in a bit of a sticky situation so yeah so um all right well next let's talk about your caring collaborative article on page six uh on an important but often overlooked part of the care that we provide to our post-acute and long-term care residents and that is oral and dental care so often when i do chart audits i find that the physicians doing the history and physical exam basically don't make any comment at all about the shape of the person's gums and teeth, uh, which, you know, can have very important uh, health implications, much broader health implications, right? And, you know, uh, setting people up for aspiration pneumonia or um, just other, you know, bacteremia and things like that with, with really uh, bad oral hygiene. So um, I, and my impression is that uh, the availability of regular dental services is limited in many facilities and in many parts of the country, uh, which goes hand in hand with poor insurance coverage that varies from state to state uh, through Medicaid. Uh, so, uh, Beth, what can you share about what you learned in writing this piece? 
Sure. Just a, a couple of points. Um, if if you haven't read it yet, um, check out the Surgeon General's updated report from uh, 2022 that focuses on oral health across the lifespan. I was pleasantly surprised that there was a significant emphasis on the importance of oral health, particularly in the post-acute and long-term care settings. Um, often we don't see that outside of the industry. Um, and so I was glad that the, you know, the Surgeon General is kind of shining a spotlight on the need to, to do better in that respect and offered a few suggestions. Surprisingly, even though um, we seem to be getting more regulations um, and additional guidance by the day, um, there hasn't been a recent change in the oral health regulations in post-acute and long-term care. And uh, what is required is quite limited. Uh, so there has to be an oral health assessment on a patient at admission, and then it just mentions periodically as needed. Um, facilities have to arrange for patients to have access to preventative and emergency dental care um, if they want, if they request, make dental service appointments, um, you know, again, for residents who request them and arrange for transportation. Um, and then assist with applications of reimbursement for dental care on behalf of the patient. And then there's um, a greater focus, I guess, on the replacement and repair of dentures. Mm -hmm. um, but that hasn't changed in some time. And I think there's so many more things we could do. And, you know, that kind of gets down to some pragmatic interventions and training programs that we could consider implementing parts of or all of in our facilities. Uh, so, um, Philip Sloan and and uh, Dr. Zimmerman's program, Mouth Care Without a Battle, um, is one of them. Uh, Smiles for Life is another. And then there's an interesting program in Maine called the Motivate Program, and it's um, Maine's oral uh, team-based initiative. It's for um, specifically for post-acute and long-term care. And all of these um, interventions and the curricula are freely available, and there's links in uh, Caring for the Ages so you can access them. Uh, so some other simple things you can do, um, role modeling for direct care staff, strategies that they can use to kind of cue and encourage residents to brush their teeth. I'm always um, amazed that even individuals with severe dementia are often able to use their old muscle memory um, if they receive just a little bit of cueing and setup. Um, yes. And it, that can make such a difference. Um, and then also, you know, while dental care service partners may be hard to find in certain parts of the country, um, we are seeing at least on the East Coast where I live, mobile dentists and dental hygienists, hygienists, hygienists are increasingly available. Um, the dental health um, can be a helpful resource to assess um, if a um, so local dental uh, care service partners are uh, can be available to meet your patient's needs. And we're seeing an increase in mobile dental services um, and also um, some uh, virtual tele dental telehealth can yeah. also be helpful to assess whether a person needs an in-person dental visit. Um, the other thing you can do is contact your local dental school or a dental hygienist program if you have one nearby in your community um, and see if there are any special needs dental services that have free or reduced price dental care um, that often involves these dental trainees. So that's another strategy we can use. 
Yeah, yeah, there's a lot there. And and we also, I mean, we have access to mobile dentists, uh, at least, you know, in San Diego County, they're pretty common. Um, but yeah, as far as getting people to brush their teeth, it's if you have good tasting toothpaste, I think that can help. But, you know, if somebody does not want you putting something in their mouth, I mean, that uh, masseter muscle is probably the strongest, you know, uh, pounds per square inch of any muscle. So if they don't want you going in their mouth, you're not going to do it. Uh, another thing I learned not too long ago is that there's this uh, like a fluoride paint or varnish uh, that can be applied to teeth and can really help preserve them from becoming carious and actually, you know, kind of build back the tooth structure. Uh, and at least here in California, a dental hygienist uh, can apply it. In fact, I think uh, a nurse can apply it with training and it's very inexpensive. Uh, so I'm working on trying to get this made available in more of our facilities. Um so, yeah, but uh, any of us that's ever had a bad toothache, I mean, it's a tiny little part of your body, but it can kind of take over your whole your whole consciousness. And sometimes I, I have found that uh, uh, behavioral issues and, you know, agitation and so on, it's because there's a bad tooth. There's a dental abscess or something going on. Yeah, I've, I've seen that as well. And in, in, in my practice, particularly, um, there was a, a woman who had been on a host of different psychotropics. This was years and years ago. And in the end, um, you know, it, she, she needed some major dental work. And um, once the majority of her teeth were pulled, um, her behavioral symptoms really improved. Yeah, yep. It's something we definitely want to keep in mind as a as a possible occult source of, uh, especially you know, associated with reduced oral intake and whatnot. We'll return to our program after this brief message. Do you enjoy AMDA's podcast series? Join AMDA for PALTC twenty three to gain access to our live archive webinars, members only forum, JAMDA, our monthly journal e-newsletters, discounts on society and education resources, networking opportunities, and more. Plus, you'll get a free electronic copy of AMDA's brand new Delirium, Depression, Dementia Clinical Practice Guide. Learn more and enroll at PALTC.org. That's PALTC.org. And now back to our podcast. Uh, so uh, I think I went out of order, but uh, so we're going to backtrack uh, to back to the front page uh, to discuss an article by Allison Villegas. Uh, she's a physician assistant from Colorado who practices in nursing homes and whom I know well from serving on AMDA's board of directors with her. And that's that's not listed in her little bio at the end there. But uh, anyway, this article clarifies some of the scope of practice issues in post-acute long-term care settings and describes some of the work that AMDA's nurse practitioner physician assistant council has done over the last years. Uh, so personally, I started working with nurse practitioners and PAs very early in my career, back when I still had an office practice, you know, in a different millennium, and uh, incorporated uh, the nurse practitioner and PA uh, onto my nursing home team when we started that in the mid-90s. I've really never had a bad experience collaborating with uh, nurse practitioners and physician assistants. I, I would have uh, and actually did uh, entrust my own family members to uh, some of these practitioners. And uh, you know, I think like all medical providers, we become dangerous when we overestimate our knowledge and competencies and, and when we are not willing to ask for help when we need it. Um, so you know, unfortunately, I've seen some some of these post-acute physician practices 
hire brand new nurse practitioner grass and cut them loose in nursing homes, take care of like really sick, complex, post-acute patients with minimal supervision. And let me just say that has not gone well in a number of cases. Um, so, and although the statistics in this piece show that nurse practitioners and PAs get sued a lot less often than doctors, um, you know, they obviously, you know, if they're not getting adequately supervised and in nursing homes where it's highly litigated, you know, I wonder if those uh, those numbers are still as as dramatic. Uh, but anyway, enough out of me. Beth, what did you get out of this article? So um, a, a couple of things. Um, the article really attempts to address some common misconceptions regarding NPs and PAs. Um, and one of them, um, the first point really addresses the ability of NPs and PAs to conduct an initial admission assessment in, skilled, in a skilled nursing facility. So we know that federal regulations from over 25 years ago indicate that NPs and PAs are not allowed to complete the initial history and physical um, as they aren't delegated to bill um, certain initial admission CPT codes. However, it's important to know that if a new resident is admitted to the facility and has some type of acute issue that needs to be addressed, um, and the NP or PA is present, they can always provide prompt attention and bill for resident care using a subsequent visit CPT code, even if that initial visit hasn't been conducted yet by the physician. Right. Um, and, you know, they can quickly kind of coordinate care to address critical issues, um, you know, and prevent some complications. And, you know, also, you know, you talked a bit about supervision. Um, I'd like to talk about collaboration. Um, and one of the best ways I think collaboration can happen is after that first 90 day period um, where the um, NP or PA can be seeing the resident for acute issues. But after that first 90-day period, the NP or PA can see the resident for every other monthly regulatory visits. And this right. alternating schedule really supports a collaborative team approach um, for both the, you know, for the patient, for the family, as well as the physician and the uh, NP or PA. So, you know, I think collaboration is is key here. And also, if if um, practices are going to hire NPs and PAs, and if they're going to hire new individuals, then they need to have a uh, a mentorship and orientation program to um, and and availability of. Uh, um, of other providers to, to provide guidance when needed. So, you know, I think all of those are important points. Right, right. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be a doc. I mean, it could just be an experienced nurse practitioner or PA, as long as the, you know, a new graduate has somebody that they can go to, to, uh, you know, ask questions and get guidance about, uh, uh, you know, to maybe a lot of these new, new grads have had very little geriatrics experience and they don't, get the basic differences, you know, uh, sure. so, you know, order a lot of unnecessary lab tests and, you know, send people back to the hospital at the drop of a hat, uh, right. you know, that kind of thing. So, so while it wasn't specifically addressed in this article, I wanted to bring up um, a change in NP preparation and certification that occurred actually several years ago now, but mm -hmm. I'm surprised how people are still not aware of it. Um, NPs in particular are prepared for specific populations like psychiatric, pediatric, et cetera. And to address the increase in the aging population, 
um, the certifying bodies for NP practice combined adult and gerontology into one specialty, yeah. and that they emphasize didactic and clinical experiences that are um, truly across the lifespan. Um, and so furthermore, there are now adult gerontology primary care NPs and adult gerontology acute care NPs. So when hiring them, it's important to have a, a good understanding of their educational preparation, their certification, years of experience as an RN, as well right. as years of experience as an NP with a specific population. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was kind of collapsing, uh, you know, adult and gerontological uh, nurse practitioners. I sort of wish they just kept a separate, uh, you know, that way you feel confident that people have have plenty of geriatrics uh, knowledge and, and education. But uh, yeah. So, so one more thing about that. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, what they were finding is that in many states, they were um, restricting uh, practice for by age. And oh. so, yes. And that's so that's why they did that, huh? That's well, that was one of the reasons. Also, uh, as with medicine, um, it, there were fewer people signing up for the gerontologic nursing programs. And so that was why they wanted to have the combined program. And, and I have to tell you, from my experience as uh, a faculty member teaching in an adult gero primary care program, we've been able to attract more people into to geriatrics and into long-term care, um, people who didn't really think at first that they would be interested in the area, but mm -hmm. have had positive experiences in the field. Uh -huh. um, but I, I do think, you know, programs vary. And so you really need to kind of investigate where the person went to school, what were their clinical experiences in post-acute and long-term care, what were their experiences in RN, and, you know, again, to provide um, that transition phase for um, that we would for any new provider. Uh, well, that's uh, that makes me feel better about all that. And I, it's, it's actually clever, right? Because that way, if it's part of the training for everybody who's going to do adult uh, practice, then if you get them some exposure to post-acute and long-term care, they may be like you and me and say, Hey, uh, this is a really cool kind of care setting, and and stick around and 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 uh, devote their careers to it. So, uh, exactly. Thank you for, for enlightening me on that. So, one last thing that maybe we can help clear up for our listeners, you know, language changes over time, and we used to commonly refer to advanced practice practitioners as mid levels, right, or mid level practitioners. I've also heard people still using the term physician extenders. Uh, AMDA stopped using these words quite a few years back, uh, but I know that they're still out there. So as a nurse practitioner yourself, can you please tell us what is considered appropriate non-pejorative terminology and what isn't? And I, I also, you know, when I said supervision, um, I mean, that is the language in some places. I do think collaboration is uh, is important and, uh, you know, maybe supervision isn't always the best term. And before you answer my question, I also... You know, I'm a delegate to the AMA for AMDA, mm -hmm. and the AMA is very, um, very opposed to any sort of independent practice for non-physicians. Um, and I'm not quite sure what's behind it, but I mean, you go to the meetings and they literally have some big banners up that say, uh, putting an end to scope creep. I mean, there's even a name for it, which I think is, uh, you know, the AMA is very... Um, progressive in so many ways and this doesn't seem progressive and you know it's under the under the rubric of kind of patient safety but i i it, i find a little disappointing um 
And uh, AMDA is not uh, not at all like that. So uh, for our listeners, I think we've uh, been ahead of the ahead of the game on um, becoming inclusive and uh, recognizing the value. So anyway, on the language thing, what do you think? Sure. So, um, and I agree. I've been very disappointed in terms of the AMA's stance, and um, glad that um, AMDA and you know the society has has moved towards um, a model of um, interprofessional collaboration. So, with the language um, eliminating the use of inappropriate terminology to describe NPs and PAs has has been an important focus early focus of the NPPA Advisory Council. And I'm pleased to say that appropriate and inclusive language has been the norm for the society and its members. The easiest um, to remember and the most appropriate terminology is to just call us what we are, nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Um, Sometimes there's a, a idea of needing to kind of group people together. If that's the case, advanced practice providers, advanced practice clinicians, um, health care professionals, those are all less specific but inclusive terms. And terms to avoid, um, as you mentioned, would be things like mid-level provider, physician extender, non-physician provider, because you're defining somebody by what they're not uh, rather yeah. than what they are. Um, so I've also even heard limited license provider, and all these terms really imply some less than um, unstated higher standard. So yeah. those are are generally things that that we try to um, pro- to avoid. So um, NP and PA works just fine. Great. Well, thank you. I mean, there's also like clinical nurse specialists and other things that um, I think are similar to nurse practitioners, but are not called nurse practitioners. Is that is that correct? I mean, I have a feeling that might be part of why they use different, you know, these sort of lumping uh, terminology. Sure. I, I think um, advanced practice registered nurses encompasses right. um, the nurse practitioners, which probably make up the largest group, um, clinical nurse specialists, nurse anesthetists, et cetera. Um, but I think the most common grouping is to kind of group NPs and PAs together. Um, so if you want to do that, advanced practice provider or advanced practice clinician is probably the best way to go. Great. Thank you for all that. You know, one other thing I've seen on some paperwork recently, licensed independent practitioner. Um, and I, I think that applies to physicians and nurse practitioners, PAs, the whole gamut. Yeah, any Any idea about that term? So I, I've not heard that term specifically, and I think it could be, you know, I I think the majority of um, PAs actually still have to, while they're, you know, have independent licensing that, you know, they have their own licensing and carry their own malpractice insurance, et cetera. I think in most states, there still needs to be some collaborative practice Um with with a physician or physician group, um, yeah. but but we can we can learn more at the conference because there'll be a session on this and um, we can talk more about it. Good deal, and I, I very much appreciate it. And I know all of us on on AMDA's board appreciate the work that the NPPA Council has done, and uh, hope that uh, that keeps up. So uh, finally, let's talk about the article on page eleven from Christine Kilgore entitled Facilitating Better Sleep and How It Might Prevent Cognitive Decline. It's clear that good restorative sleep is important for a lot of reasons, 
and you know it's healthy both physically and psychologically uh and obviously uh non-restorative bad sleep is the opposite right it's bad for you physically and uh psychologically so you know one thing this article didn't mention that i think is critically important to those of us who write orders on our residents is that we actually can do a lot to prevent sleep disruption like not ordering medications to be dosed q6 hours around the clock or even for some people, Q8 hours, because it's like, okay, it's 10 p.m., you get a dose, and then it's 6 a.m., you get a dose. And I don't know about you, I'm I'm not much of a morning person. I don't want somebody coming in and waking me up at 6 a.m. because, you know, I have to take my thyroid on, a, on an empty stomach or something. I'd much rather say, look, take it after breakfast, and we'll just keep an eye on your, your uh, you know, your labs and make sure you're getting the right dose for that. But, um, and also, you know, instructing staff not to awaken residents. I am blown away when I do chart audits and I see that, you know, they've got a full set of vitals done at 2 a.m. It's like, why in God's name are you going to wake somebody up at 2 a.m. to take their vitals? I can tell you my blood pressure would be high, you know, if they came in to wake, you know, startled me awake to check my vitals at that hour. So um, we should try to make sure these things are not being done and unnecessarily on our, on our uh, residents. And also, I hear residents sometimes complain that there's a lot of shouting up and down the hallways at night uh, and those types of things and all of that stuff, you know, we can take an active role. in. so I encourage our listeners to try to be mindful of that, you know? Um, so uh, anyway, Dr. Gallick, what are some pearls you got from this article? So, you know, Carl, all those points you mentioned are, are important. Also, the importance of Im implementing non-farm approaches to sleep disturbance, things like establishing nighttime routines, um, thinking about bright light exposure and physical activity during the day, having opportunities for that, considering the impact of medication-induced uh, subsyndromal delirium on the impact of sleep disturbance. So in many instances, fewer sedating medicines during the day can lead to really better sleep at night. Um, the other uh, point that was kind of interesting is there, um, and Dr. Adam Spira and some um, additional Johns Hopkins University researchers um, are exploring a variety of areas that once their uh, research is done, I think will um, give um, be of interest to post-acute long-term care clinicians. So they're conducting a large randomized controlled trial looking at the efficacy and safety of trazodone. Because um, mm -hmm. up until now, um, those trials have been, you know, kind of quite small and and had um, issues in terms of research design. Also, the role of circadian rhythms and sleep disturbance in the development of agitation among individuals with dementia. And as you mentioned, how um, looking at how better sleep can perhaps uh, slow cognitive decline. So really looking at all of those things um, for the future. Yeah, yeah, well, I... I... I really value my sleep. I don't do nearly as well uh, when I don't get a good night's sleep. Uh, you know, back during residency, you know, you're up up all night and you seem to do okay for the most part. But uh, uh, the older I've gotten, the the more I uh, really value a good restful night's sleep. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So um, a few other articles from this January issue that stood out to me were the column about assessing patients' decisional capacity uh, Dr. by Dr. Damian Doyle and an attorney, Mr. Sollins. Uh, and this uses the tried and true 
Grisso and Applebaum criteria. And, you know, it's our job as clinicians to determine decisional capacity. I mean, obviously there are people who are complex or, you know, that might need a formal mental health evaluation, but ultimately in most cases, it's going to fall to us to determine if the person is able to make especially medical decisions on their own behalf. And, you know, so it's not all or nothing in, in many cases. And a particular BIMS score or mini mental or MOCA or just being oriented in three spheres doesn't necessarily confer decisional capacity uh, or or that you lack decisional capacity. So it's important to document specifics, you know, uh, in our in our notes uh, for people who are in that kind of gray area. In other words, those who are not obviously incapacitated or those who are not obviously completely lucid and, and have full on capacity. Uh, so that's a good one for, for our readers. Then uh, dear Dr. Steve Levinson's column is all about CMS and the OIG's war on antipsychotics. It's a bit of a scary read for prescribers. There's talk about, you know, having a nurse turn in the prescriber to the, the medical board or whatever their licensing board is uh, for schizophrenia diagnoses. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a scary, scary read. Uh, then Joanne Caldy's article on the importance of humor, I thought was spot on. The humor is super important to me as a coping mechanism. And I think it's something that can help us and our patients get through difficult times. And uh, so that's a great one. And then the results of uh, our Caring for the Ages reader survey uh, are in this issue. So uh, Beth, before we close, uh, any other articles that stood out to you or are there any other uh, comments or wisdom to share? So I always enjoy Dr. Winokur's uh, words of wisdom in his regular columns. And I thought um, he he had an exceptional article talking about kind of the dis disappointments related to um, medications available for treatment of dementia. Mm. Um, on a positive note, we are making kind of a slight change um, in the upcoming year where we've had um, a caregiver's corner. These are things that could be kind of used and printed and copied for uh, family caregivers. And we're going to keep that, but that's going to be offered four times a year. And then we're going to, we've um, started a new initiative, the nursing assistance corner, and it's going to be from nursing assistance for nursing assistance. That's so um, great. Yep. Yeah. And, and Joanne Caldy's conducting the interviews. And so we have our first one with um, Lori Porter, who's been a, a wonderful collaborator with uh, AMDA. And so um, yeah. We're looking yeah, forward Lori. to having having um, uh, those columns um, in the upcoming year. Yeah, me too. I, Lori's a fortune, force of nature, and uh, uh is doing great work. And I'm glad that Amda is uh, able to partner with them on that. And yeah, Jerry Winokur's article was excellent, and it always is. And uh, I'm so glad we have him as a regular uh, contributor. And you know, he wrote a book of poetry a few years ago, and you can get it on Amazon. Human voices wake us, I think, or I, I, I'm just uh, going from memory. But it's uh, it really, really. Uh, I'm not a big poetry reader, but I, I love this. You know, it was relevant to me as a geriatrician, and uh, just uh, great, great uh, words there. So, if our listeners want to look that up, uh, I highly recommend it. Um, all right, well. That's going to wrap it up for the January 2023 Caring on the Go podcast. Under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Beth Gallick, and Managing Editor, Tess Bird, 
Caring for the Ages continues to report and reflect the outstanding work being done by AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and its leaders, members, and communities. Please take a look at the January issue, available as always without a paywall at www.caringfortheages.com. And please recommend and share caring with your friends and colleagues. Dr. Gallick, thanks again for spending your time with Caring on the Go. Thanks, Carl. And now until next time, which I guess will be next year, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Caring on the Go, wishing all of our listeners and readers the best for a great year in 2023 beyond all your expectations. See you next time. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Mm-hmm.